Uh, my question relates to what is your company? Arctic? Arct no, Attic. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, relates to the practical functioning of Attic in relation to either current or future customers. How do you operate? What's your operation in relation to the customers? You've shown us a lot about the technology. Oh. And perhaps if you can go a bit more into um, sort of what kind of a uh, relationship have you built or what kind of projections are there when you to get these customers? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you, Henning. Um, what ATIC's doing is uh, building these applications and building the tools. And we're really shrewdly getting other people to pay us to build those tools. Then we have the tools and we will charge them to continue to use those tools. <laughs> we are there in that we, um, we have a broad range of customers, both from industry and from government. Um, we have uh, a range of uh, our contracts. Um, I could probably best delineate our business sectors. One, we sell satellite imagery to the Canadian academic market. That's a small business. doesn't make us a lot of money, but it makes us connected to about 270 people throughout Canada at the universities and colleges. And that's a very important database to have. The other thing we do is we build actual image software. Nothing to do with these extracting information things. These are just simply tools. We have a thing called auto-mosaicing. What it means is it stitches all these images together automatically. Very difficult because each of these images has all kinds of distortions. And you have to do a thing called orthorectify these image, images. And that's rubber sheeting and stretching it in different ways so that the points, the roads, etc., the buildings, the big tree, is exactly where it is in space, on the ground. And that's all these GIS referencing. And in 3D, because we have a thing called digital elevation model. So that it's not two-dimensional, it's three-dimensional. So we have tools like that, and also we have to build tools to correct for the angles. So when that picture is taken, whether it's from a helicopter, airplane, or satellite, it may be over here. So you've got those angles to compensate for. You also have the atmosphere to compensate for. What temperature, how much water vapor was in the air at that time, etc. All of these are very precise mathematical models that we can do now automatically, rapidly used to be an extremely tedious months and months of work to stitch things together. So we have sold and licensed that to some of these large software companies. And uh, they're no different than Microsoft. I mean, they charge a lot of money, and they have new versions every year that don't work. And uh, so, you know, those are, those are very specialized tools. Then there, of course, the 
tools, these applications, how do you extract species, you know, information, let's say, or health information, forest information, or water information. So those are another set of tools. Another set of tools is how do you create that and do a monitoring system so that you can quantify change over time, year to year. And um, so those are, those are the things that we're doing. We are working with companies like Dynagra to do variable rate technology and build up a, a capacity. We're working with, you know, with Alberta Environment um, in, under contract. We have another um, whole business sector, which is a, a production run with ASRD, which is Alberta Sustainable Resource Development. They're in charge of what's called a land use framework. And what they need to do is to find out what is happening in Alberta and map it. What is the land use? What is the vegetation? What is the water, etc.? And so um, what we're doing is actually developing those maps, developing those classification maps, and and giving it to them under contract. So, My name is Van Christou. I, I'd like to uh, start out my comments by thanking our moderator for bringing you to us today, Eric. Uh, thank you, and thank you for such a wonderful presentation. Um, being, feeling like a dinosaur in this age of high technology that you're involved in, I, I feel incapable of a asking an intelligent questions. So I wonder if I can be permitted to make a comment instead. When I grew up here in Lethbridge as, as, a, as a young boy, we felt, uh, I felt, and I think it was commonly felt that way, that uh, if anything important ever happened in this world, it would happen elsewhere, maybe in the States somewhere, and, uh, and certainly not in Lethbridge if anything happened in Canada. Uh, here we are with leading technology in the field right here in our home, Lethbridge. And uh, I think this, this demonstrates an enormous change that's occurred just in my lifetime uh, in where leading technology can happen anywhere if we have the people with the vision and the, and, and the ability to do it. So thank you very much for being with us. And thank, thank you for those comments. I would like to agree with that sentiment. Um, Lethbridge is uh, no longer a podunk in the global economy. Uh, Lethbridge is very much there. Is actually a heck of a lot nicer place to live than Mississauga or whatever. It's a great community with a lot of capacity. We have uh, top-notch people at the Agriculture Research Center, at ADRI, Animal Diseases, at the college, at the university, at the hospital. We've got a lot of capacity here, and you can um, grow small companies like this that are strategic. And, um, yeah, we've got a great community, and, and anything can happen. Uh, I'd also like to thank you for your presentation. I'm Trevor Page. Uh, years ago, 25 years ago, um, it was my task to try and make use of satellite imagery um, when I was with the UN to try to predict um, the onset of drought. We were <clears throat> trying to monitor the globe and, and specifically drought-prone areas. 
And the imagery that we were getting at that time was mainly from Landsat, but <coughs> Spot was just coming online at the time. And the problem in those days was that one, the imagery couldn't distinguish the difference between grass and wheat. So yes, you knew there was a difference in the density of vegetation, but you didn't know what it was. So it really didn't help us, or rather, it was only of use if we could put somebody on the ground to go check it out. Now the science must have improved very considerably since then. And I wonder if it is possible now, or if you know if it's possible now, to distinguish the difference between grass and wheat or millet or sorghum. Thank you. Very good example of uh, the evolution of the science. And yes, we can. We can tell you a lot about not only which species it is, what variety it is, and also what the diseases it has. However we still have to go to the ground and do ground truthing. And uh, a lot of the uh, equipment and apparatus that I showed you in one of that slides, they had more primitive tools back then than they have now. And nowadays, uh, these tools are very important. And uh, we actually do field work, and we collect leaves of different samples, and we do different types of modeling right on the ground in order to build a lot of the mathematical algorithms that we are doing to say that is crested wheatgrass and that is rye and that's oats, etc. So yeah, it's come a long way. Um, but again, some of these capabilities are not available to all of the uh, satellites because they only have a few bands. One of the things I didn't mention is the fact that we have a very strong hyperspectral imaging group here in Lethbridge. But there is no such a thing as a hyperspectral imaging satellite yet. They've been being built for the last nine years, and the next one's going up. The very first one is going up in 2011. And it'll probably be 2012 before it's up there. We're building a capacity here in Lethbridge with our team to be able to translate all of our hyperspectral imaging through airplanes and helicopters or space. So we're way ahead of the curve. And I can tell you that the European Space Agency and particularly the Germans and the Swedish Space Corporation, etc., they're very involved with what we're doing. So is NASA. A follow-up question, if I may. Um, what is the smallest object you can photograph from space? I mean, I've seen photographs of cars. I don't think I've seen the photograph of a person's head. There's two, there's two answers. Um, there's certainly the resolution on the commercial um, satellites are under a meter in terms of point-to-point -point pixel resolution. Uh, you know, 0 0.6, point whatever. There's, there's a range there. And the other answer, I can't tell you because it's military. And those where the big babies are. And the whole idea of reading a newspaper or catching a, you know, the James Bond stuff. All I can say is it's pretty close. 
but we have not found Osama bin Laden yet, so. <laughs> Thanks very much. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, Bridget Pasteur, I'm going to ask a couple of very simple questions because I basically didn't have a clue what you were talking about. Sorry. Sort of, no, no, I sort of feel like Van Christu as, as being the dinosaur, but I would like to point out one thing, and I'm sure almost everyone in this room knows it, but I want to point it out anyway, that without the vision of Van Christu, we would not have the university to which you are connected at this point, and we wouldn't have what we have in Lethbridge today. So, you know what? Thank you, Van. Mm -hmm. So my, my, my question is, what do you do when there's cloud cover? And then my other question is, because one of the things that I'm working on as an issue is the fragmentation of farmland. So do you actually do um, the satellite imaging to see where, in fact, we've got good arid farmland that is now turned into cement? Yes, land use... For your last question, land use is uh, very important to us, and we're looking at change and of quality and, and that type of thing. And there's a number of people that, that use that information, everything from the townships to the councils, the water councils to um, urban planning and that type of thing. And what was the first question? Cloud cover. You wait for another day. Basically, they're going around and around. And um, if you don't catch it on July 3rd, you catch it July 4th or July 5th. It depends. Some of these, it depends on the um, actual orbits because they, uh, they actually have these orbits that aren't perfectly circular. They have these woo. And uh, what they do is have it so that in the interesting areas, it takes a lot longer to go and do it so they can get a lot more photography and then they zip across the poles and do things like that. So uh, with cloud cover, um, the image is a very large image uh, depending on the, on, on the uh, satellite, but they're all large. And uh, you use what you can and you stitch in the next days. Uh, that's how you do it. And of course, with things like um, SAR or uh, radar, you just look through the clouds. They're Invisible. Uh, my name's uh, <clears throat> John Nightingale. Uh, a couple of quick questions. Um, you'd mentioned drones that were in use as part of these surveys, and I was just wondering if these aerial drones are ever considered to be hazards to commercial aviation. And the second question I have is, recently I've been looking at um, satellite images of the summit of uh, Kilimanjaro, like before and after pictures, and the glaciers clearly are, are shrinking, which uh, thanks to satellite imagery. But I was wondering if, um, if the uh, technology that you're working with here actually is looking at the polar ice caps um, to substantiate or otherwise uh, global warming. Thank you. Okay. The whole issue of drones and unmanned vehicle, airborne unmanned vehicles, is um, in an evolution with Transport Canada. Right now, uh, you can do uh, a lot of things in places like Suffield because Suffield is a closed area for commercial um, use. Outside of Suffield, you need to get from Transport Canada a thing called an FAC, a special FAC. However, we don't have the regulations and the protocols and uh, all the rest that CCUVS in Medicine Hat's working with 
Transfer Canada to evolve. They want to create binders full of everything from educational certification for the people that are going, going to operate these things to the actual regulations to being able to fly. The, um, right now you have to have line of sight. So it's like having a model airplane um, that you can manually, but it's within uh, a three-kilometer area. You can't let it go. Of course, you could do that in Afghanistan and Iraq, places like that, because those are war zones. They do whatever they want, the military. But in Canada, um, they want to develop these technologies so they're out of line of flight. And especially for things like up in the north, where you don't have a lot of risk in terms of airplanes, etc. The other way to put it is um, the airplanes that you're flying today are all computerized and being run by a computer. The um, Airbuses and all of those totally run by computers. They have pilots in case there's a problem, but the idea is you get the idea. It's hundreds of thousands of um, flying hours without humans actually doing it. And that's basically the uh, unmanned vehicle systems that you're talking about are expensive and are highly evolved and have a track record and a known track record. So I see these things as coming and we have regulations that will allow us to, in Canada, get the jump on Europe and the United States. And uh, we see this as uh, especially good for us when it comes to Arctic sovereignty and things like monitoring our fishing grounds rather than putting people at risk, put those things out there. And they will be flying in the same airspace, all computerized, as your Cessnas and your Airbuses. You asked another question. Boy, am I long-winded. <laughs> oh. Yeah. The satellite imagery is a tool, and it's a tool that hasn't been around for a long time. And uh, we provide the data. The interpretation is going to, of course, be up to other people. And it's, um, I mean, is it, a lot of people ask, is global warming real? And um, you can look at um, recent events and say, oh, boy, look at that. Those glaciers have been boom, 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 boom. You look at the time-lapse photography basically from science, from space. And you could, you could show and demonstrate certain things. Whether there is global warming or not is, um, is a debatable thing in a lot of scientific um, belief structures. You've got polarized people on one side, polarized people on the other side. Uh, we do know that the planet is very volatile. One volcano can disrupt several years of climate, and um, so can other other phenomena, and uh, the whole idea of predicting the weather is very elusive. <laughs> Try Lethbridge weather. <laughs> um, no, it's, uh, it's very, very difficult to, to follow these short-term, long-term things, and, uh, um, but your point's well taken. We have tools, and we're paying attention to them. Mount Kilimanjaro is a very good example, because you just climbed it. Congratulations. <laughs> Hi, I'm Pat Greenlee. I have a kind of a very basic question. If that satellite is out there going around all the time, is it always clicking pictures 
or or taking pictures and then and then you get a contract for some specific thing and then you sort of um, zero in on a particular area is that is that how it works um, sort of but in all actuality no it's not always taking pictures because quite often it's um, over oceans and things like that that there is no mm -hmm. revenue to be made from those pictures okay and uh, the other thing is in Canada we take very little um, photography from about mid-November to um, I'd say end of March because there's snow and there's nothing really of interest economically going on so there is no real market for that so I hope that answers your question it, it's really yeah. what are the areas um, just because it's way in the north if there's only gooseberries or something up there. Um, yeah, we do take pictures of that, but generally in the summer, and we're doing mm -hmm. complete land maps, yes, annually, but um, but not in the winter. So if, if um, say, the B.C. government decided they wanted to zero in on marijuana uh, plantations that are growing in the middle of a wheat field, then they could... They could uh, contract you, and you would say, "Okay, there's one there, and one there, and one there." And mm -hmm. wow! Yeah. And they would actually, uh, we're developing systems where they can just go online and just look look for it. Mm -hmm. Here's the tool. There's marijuana. You want to look at it? Yesterday's image. There it is. Yeah. Uh, Terry Shellington. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation and uh, your information. And I, I fit into somewhat the same category as Van and Bridget, whatever category that is. Uh, but, but I am a preacher, and I do know that uh, you know we're always interested in evil. And um, and for every uh, wonderful invention, there's always um, an abusive side to it. And uh, it's a general question, but I wonder uh, what are the misuses of this technology that we need to be aware of? And um, uh, 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 you may not be involved in it, you probably aren't, but what would be the dark side to this whole technology that allows us to see so much and uh, know so much about uh, uh, every stitch of the earth? Hmm. Well, I suppose invasion of privacy would be one potential area. If you're growing marijuana, you have a right to keep that secret, I suppose. But um, I think, uh, you know... I'm hard-pressed to really answer that. Uh, I mean, there are technologies do, that do have a, a downside. I mean, I know of colleagues that have been developing uh, the capacity for when you're looking at a road in Google, you can actually see the shops and the stores as you drive down that road, and you can move it up and down. You've probably seen that type of technology. Well, that's highly invasive if you have someone found in a certain location, you may not want to be known to be in that location. So they've developed software to fuzz out faces and license plates and things like that. But for satellite imagery, it's really not, um, there's not much that would be of, um, the resolution isn't there. I mean, I could look at naked ladies uh, in, in, a, in a resort or something, but uh, you won't see much detail. <laughs> not high enough resolution. I tried. <laughs> but, you know, so what kind of um, negative thing? Can't see it. 
mostly it's all about the truth. You know, for instance, some of the farmers that are going to purchase uh, a large acreage of potato farms, I mean, we're talking $6 million purchase. What they'd like to know is what was in those fields for the last four or five years. What were the rotations? And so they can do that quite inexpensively. And that's, you know, revealing, you know, what was going on. But in terms of private matters and private, um, uh, it's all knowledge, you know, the building is there or it wasn't there in 2000. And it's all history. You can, you can map history. You can map reality. But I have yet to think of something that has the downside. That'd be interesting. It's a good challenging question. Thank you. Yes, Eric, thank you very much. My name is Peter Green. Uh, I do have a question about the, the, uh, the terrifically interesting presentation that you've just given. Uh, I, I noticed that, that you're interested in a whole range of, diff of images with different spectral characteristics so that you can identify a variety of different characteristics. And I'm wondering, when you're downloading images, do, do you download specific images with specific spectral characteristics, or do you simply download a whole bunch of uh, spectral information and then select the image on your computers to construct whatever it is that you're looking at? Thank you. Very good question. Actually, most of the satellites, you have two modes. You have a panchromatic black and white high-resolution mode, which the pixels are really small, and you can get a lot of detail. And then you have your spectral mode, multispectral mode. And um, those have a number of bands. And actually what you're doing is you're capturing the sensor's information. So it's sensor-driven. Um, some of them only had four or five bands in the early days. And you would use those bands to extract information. Now the uh, multispectral ones have... Uh, dozens and dozens of bands, and then, of course, you can extract more. And the hyperspectral, hundreds and hundreds. So you're, it's basically the sensor has all these bands, and you capture that information. Then, on your computer, that's when it becomes very specific how you extract the information with the computer at these different bands and these different segments. And that gets a little more complicated to explain a lot of the mathematics of that and of, of the um, how you would how you would do that. But um, yeah, it's basically as you say, you're you're looking at it with the computer after the fact. And you know, you're a photographer. You're a photographer. I was a photographer. I did tons of. Uh, Photographic work. I was an electron microscopist at Agriculture Canada. Got into digital imaging. Got into artificial intelligence. Got into um, this field, <laughs> which is digital imaging and extracting information. It all started in a dark room, working with silver halides and black and white photography, and uh, wonderful career. One photography is great. <laughs>